This morning, we continue on in this message series of the seven final statements of Jesus on the cross. But before we get into it, let me first introduce myself. Uh, because many of you may know me, but some of you may be here for the first time this morning, or maybe we just haven't had a chance to shake hands and get to know each other yet. But my name is Caleb Gabrelli, and I'm the director of our Grace Point Church Junior High Ministries. Um, in, in fact, last year, one of my students, he gives me a Christmas card and says, Merry Christmas, Caleb. Thank you for directing us. Well, that's, that was sweet. I'm sure he just looked right into the Sunday bulletin, found my job title, and was like, oh, okay, he directs us. Okay, let's write that in there. But no, um, Pat, our lead pastor, Mike McDaniel, who's in South Africa, he asked me sometime last year if I was about ready to speak on a Sunday morning. And I had done a fantastic job at avoiding that question from Mike for so long because this scares me. This makes me nervous. I'm, Mike asked me and I'm thinking, who? You know, you, you want me to speak to not only students, but to their friends and their, their family, to their parents? You want, you want me to speak in front of, in front of more people who might oppose me or judge me? No offense to you all, but that, those are just my thought processes, although some of you may judge me. But no, no offense to you. I'm just thinking this, and, and my, my selfish tendencies are coming out, and I'm uncomfortable. The crazy thing is, is I am more comfortable speaking in, a, in an Islamic um, war-torn, poverty-stricken West African country. I would rather share the gospel there. I'm more comfortable, crazy as that sounds. So I had done an awesome job at avoiding Mike McDaniel's invitation to speak here. Uh, but a little bit more about me. I'm a husband to my best friend, my wife, Amanda. I'm a father to our two boys, Kate and Eli and Tate Isaiah. Um, I'm good with junior high students. And I think it's because I can continue to act immature. I, I mean, be myself, be myself. Um, but I, I love junior high students. I'm good with them. I love that season of life. I love partnering with so many of you parents in the hopes that we will see your young people fuse into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is my ultimate goal and my hope to see that. Um, I'm, I'm good at going to West Africa and sharing the hope of Jesus with people. I love it. I love doing that. I'm good at walking from hut to hut. I'm good at eating foods that most of our bodies don't agree with. I'm good at picking up on different different languages, different cultures. I love that. I'm good at deer hunting. I love to deer hunt. I've got buddies in here that I hunt with. I've got family in here that I hunt with. Um, I'm good at thinking like a deer because it helps me track their patterns and their movements. I know I've got a problem. Some of you guys have already checked out. But speaking in big church... That's what you call it when you work with children and students for a while. You call it the Sunday morning show. This is big church. This is the big leagues right here. Speaking in big church, I don't know, Mike. I, I don't know. Um, I knew it was time. So when Mike asked me, I said, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And so he talked through this message series that we're going through of these seven final statements of Jesus on the cross. I chose this particular statement that we're going to look at this morning, which is the fifth statement of Jesus uh, we'll find out here in a little while if that was a good idea or not. Uh, but before we before we get into scripture and really dig into this statement, I, I want to ask for your prayer over me. And then I want to invite you guys to pray some things over yourselves. I, I don't think we can ever pray enough. So before we start, I have a couple of fears that I want to share with you and I want you to pray for. Number one, um, I'm just naturally nervous speaking in front of people. And so many people are like, oh, it doesn't show. Yeah, whatever. You're just trying to make me feel comfortable. I get nervous, you know. Um, it's, it's real selfish though. I, I worry about what I'm going to sound like, what I'm going to mispronounce. What, what, what am, what am I going to appear to be? I don't want to look like something I'm not. I don't even know what to do with my hands. Like, do I wave them like this? Do I put them in my pocket? Like, seriously, I get nervous. It's just me. 
So pray for that fear. And then pray for, for another fear of mine. We are, um, we're, we're going we're gonna to study the very words of God. Um, in, in human flesh, Jesus, God, we, we're going we're gonna to talk about things that he said as he was on the cross for us. And it scares me. I don't want to misinterpret something. I don't want to misunderstand something. I don't want to mislead you all. And I really want to take this with the, the weight and the depth that it deserves. Um, the, the same God who created everything in six days and rested on the seventh, the same God who created Adam from dust of the earth and breathed life into Adam, the same God who has been breathing life into the McCuller family after their boys had a severe car accident a week and a half ago and their, their lives have been changed, the same God who breathed life into me. These are the words of God, and I have a fear that we take them too lightly. So pray for those two fears of mine, and then I give you permission to pray over yourselves. I don't know how late you were up. Maybe you got up 20 minutes ago for some of the younger ones in here. Maybe you argued with the family on the way here. Maybe you're just looking to hear something that you can share with a coworker this week. But I'm asking you to, to pray for yourselves as I pray that God would give you more of him. That God would reveal more of his love for you in this message. That you would get personal application. So let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning um, speaking um, to a wonderful church, speaking on, 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 on this continent while Grace Point Church is actually being represented on three different continents today. God, take away fears that I have, but God, um, leave a bit of the fear and the weight of, of speaking your word. Leave a healthy fear there, God. Speak through me. Give clarity and focus to the individuals in this room right now. Allow their hearts to go to a place of, of worship, their attitudes and their minds to a place of worship. Um, God, reveal more of, of your love, your ultimate love for them as we are about to look at your son going to the cross. God, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, well, we're going to jump right in to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 28. But if you're just joining us today in the middle of this message series, or maybe you just need a refresher, um, this, is, this is the fifth statement of Jesus on the cross, the first three statements. Um, you really see how they center on other people. The first statement really centers on the enemies of Jesus. As we see Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Um, the second one was to the thief, and Jesus said, Today you will join me in paradise. And then the third one was to John and Mary when he said, Woman, here is your son. Disciple, here is your mother. Last week, Brett Ferguson spoke this cry of anguish that we see from Jesus on the cross when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then today starts the final three statements of Jesus on the cross, and they're about him. And you can really match up body, soul, and spirit. Today we're, we're going to talk about I am thirsty. He's talking about his body. And then next week, I... Um, it is finished in the next week. Um, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Today, John nineteen twenty eight. if you'll look there with me, it just says, later knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. Three simple but profound words. Some of your translations, maybe it's just two words, and he just says, I thirst. And then if you look up the Greek, I don't know why you would, but I did. Um, the, it's just one word, and it's dipso. And it's, uh, Jesus is thirsting. And so as I'm preparing to speak this message, I was studying this statement. And honestly, I'm looking in my Bible, and I'm going, "Where? where's the rest? Like, that's it? You know, I... 
there's got to be more here. I, I don't, maybe I should have paid more attention. Mike said it was the seven final statements, but I was looking for some more meat, right? Mike, you tricked me. Uh, but really, uh, Jesus was beaten. He was, he was nailed to a cross. He suffered for us. His body was thirsty. He needed water, right? What is there that, here that I need to know beyond that? And so I asked some random individuals in the church and I talked to some people outside of the church and I just explained what I was going to be speaking on and what I was studying. And I said, man, what do you, what do you think this means? And the most common response I got really aligned with my thoughts. It was, um, he was thirsty. I mean, he was dying. He needed water. And then I think uh, soldiers or something gave him wine vinegar to drink and then it was finished. Yeah. But why do you think Jesus was thirsty? What, why would Jesus be thirsty? No one had any real personal application from this statement, from this verse, myself included, until I began to dig deep. And so at first glance, we see that his thirst on the cross was a fulfillment of Scripture. I mean, it's in the verse. It says, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. But so what? I don't want to quickly pass over something where we might need to pull back the layers and dig even deeper. So this morning, I want to start with his suffering and the level of intensity that Jesus endured on the cross for each and every one of us. And if you're taking notes, it's the intensity of his suffering. Because we know that part of the agony of the wounds that Jesus suffered in his beatings and upon the cross is this burning thirst, this extreme thirst. And I'm going to try to get your minds to this place of extreme thirst because it's worse than the type of thirst that I used to face when I was a little child and I would go out and play on the playground at recess and I would get so hot on those hot days and I would race back in and line up at the water fountain and there'd be kids behind me and I'd be slurping in the water and looking behind me like I'm not finished. And I just keep slurping in and slurping in until kids started to say things like, geez, Caleb, save some water for the fish in the ocean. You know, just smart things like that, right? It's different than that type of thirst. It's different than any type of thirst I've ever experienced because I've never been dying before. When criminals who were flogged, before they were ever hung on a cross, when criminals were flogged, they would often go into something called hypovolemic shock. And it's just basically a term that refers to low blood volume. And so what happens is because of the blood loss during their flogging, their hearts begin to race to pump blood that wasn't there. The the victims would, would collapse or often pass out. Their kidneys would just shut down in order to preserve their body fluids. But the person would experience this extreme thirst because their body is trying to replenish everything that had been lost. When the body loses a lot of blood, and I really don't mean a lot of blood... I mean, a lot of blood when the body loses a lot of blood an extreme thirst is produced. A couple of weeks ago, I was coming back from another global adventure to West Africa and I was wiped out. I was exhausted. I was on the plane. I'm trying to sleep. I'm six foot four. Try to sleep on a plane when you're six foot four. It doesn't go so well. So I turn on the movie and a little headrest in front of me. And I'm flipping through different movies as I'm kind of slipping in and out of sleeping. And I, I come across a Western. I grew up watching Westerns. My grandpa and I would stay up late. We'd buy a box of Cheez-Its and watch John Wayne and Cowboys shoot each other for hours into the night. I I guess it was his deal. And I'm watching this Western on the plane and a guy gets shot and the blood stain is on his shirt and the man is dying. And as he's dying, you know what he asks for? Surprisingly, not not whiskey, but he says, "I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm dying. I'm so thirsty. Can you give me something to drink? Can you give me some water? 
The terrible cries of those that are abandoned on the field of battle, you often hear is water, water, because of the blood that's been lost and because of the energy that has been exerted. We see this in Judges chapter 15. The spirit of the Lord comes upon a guy named Samson. And with the jawbone of a donkey, he strikes down a thousand men. And after this intense, violent battle, he cries out to the Lord and he says, you have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst? Water was so important in battle times that there were some men whose specific job was not to fight up front with swords or hand-to-hand combat or with spears. It was just to carry water back here from the tent up to the men who were battling. Back from the tent up here to the men who were battling because they had to have water. They were losing blood. They were wounded. They were expending energy. At this point, in Jesus' crucifixion, his flesh, like all human flesh, was desperate with a burning thirst. And now here on the cross, in the mystery of the incarnation, God gets inside human suffering. I'll do my my best to, to paint you an illustration. Because of the outstretched position of his arms, the chest cavity is stuck in this expanded state, making it extremely difficult to breathe. With the severe loss of blood from the beatings and the progression of his crucifixion, Jesus is becoming dehydrated. His body is having less and less blood to even carry oxygen. His heart is beginning to beat faster and faster as it's attempting to compensate. And the need for oxygen just continues to increase. As he's hanging there on the cross, he's probably slumped over. And he's having to push up on the nails just to allow flexibility in his chest in order to inhale and exhale. And as if the crucifixion and the beatings and the pain he's enduring isn't enough, every time he has to push up in order to take a breath or to breathe out, he's having to scrape his raw flesh-torn back against the rough wooden cross. And everything just continues to intensify and intensify as time is passing. For criminals who were crucified in this, this fashion on the cross, the body... It gets to the point of no return and the person would die from their heart rupturing or from asphyxiation. But before all of that happened, this extreme burning thirst is produced as the body is craving and desiring water. Most of us in this room, I would, I would pretty much bet are afraid of death in one way or another. And maybe not this type of death on a cross, God willing, no one should die that way. But maybe the slow, painful death that many of us, myself included, have experienced or watched a loved one, a friend or a family member suffer through and endure through on the cross, right here on the cross in this moment as he is thirsty. God in Jesus is tasting of that suffering. And some of you, some of you might still be saying, so what? Like, I, you know, I've seen Passion of the Christ. Like, I, I've got a pretty good visual of it. I know it was intense. Why is this important to remember? Because the intensity of his suffering points even more to the humanity of Jesus. Uh, our, for our Jesus, there is truly no place where we might have to go where he hasn't already been. He has been where you are. Maybe you guys have a hard time understanding that Jesus was fully God and fully man. This is an extremely difficult thing to comprehend and to to fully grasp. But I believe that John 19 points even more to the evidence of humanity. And I believe that Jesus was and Jesus is both son of God and son of man. 
Let's work through this idea of the evidence of humanity of Jesus a little bit more. And I'm going to start with John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, a long time ago, someone told me, just just replace word with Jesus and read it again. Okay, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jump over to verse 14 in the same chapter. John 1, verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus was both son of God and son of man. He wasn't two different personalities. He, He was one person with two different natures, the divine and the human. In his book, The Seven Sayings of the Savior on the Cross by a man, uh, uh, by, a man by the name of A.W. Pink, this is what he writes. He says, while here on earth, the Lord Jesus gave full proof of his deity. He spoke with divine wisdom. He acted in divine holiness. He exhibited divine power and he displayed divine love. He read men's minds. He moved men's hearts and compelled men's wills. When he was pleased to exert his power, all nature was subject to his bidding. A word from him and disease fled. A storm was stilled. The devil left him and the dead were raised to life. In John chapter 14, there is a passage of scripture where a man named Thomas, many of you guys have heard of Thomas, he gets really honest with Jesus and he plainly tells him, I don't understand. And this conversation comes shortly after Jesus said to his disciples, I'm not going to be with you much longer and I'm going to a place where you can't follow me just yet. And so in John chapter 14, Verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? It's famous verse, John 14, 6. Jesus responds and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip speaks up and he says, Lord, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus was fully God. And Jesus was fully man. We see him in Luke 2, verse 7. Jesus enters the world as a baby boy and is quickly wrapped in cloths. I'm pretty sure we still do that with newborns today as the nurses and doctors rush around the room to wrap them up and keep them warm. We see him as a child growing in wisdom and in stature. As a young man, we see him listening to teachers in the temple courts and even asking questions. Our Jesus was asking questions. We even find him tired from a long journey as he arrives at a well to visit with a Samaritan woman. In Matthew, we've heard about Jesus fasting as he was being tempted in the desert. And guess what the Bible says next? He was hungry. Most of you know the story of Jesus calming the storm. What did the disciples find him doing just before that? He was sleeping. Our Jesus was tired. He was sleeping. He was fully man. We see two different accounts where Jesus has this emotion of being amazed, once for people's extreme faith and once for their lack of faith. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. one of the shortest verses in the Bible after the death of his good friend Lazarus. He prayed. We find him rejoicing. Today in John nineteen twenty eight. he says, I'm thirsty. 
Does, does God thirst? Do, do angels thirst? In Revelation 7, 16, it says, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. But we're thirsty now because we're human and we're living in a broken, fallen world. And Jesus thirsted because he was fully man. So these words of Jesus, I am thirsty, they display the intensity of his suffering. That points even more to the humanity of Jesus. And now we see Jesus as a man submitting to the father. Don't miss that. Jesus submits to his father. Jesus, as an act of obedience, acknowledgement to authority, reverence for God, submits to the father. How often are we not even willing to do something? But Jesus, in this example, is submitting to his father and he is thirsty as he is on that cross. And yeah, Jesus was thirsty, but don't forget something. Don't forget that our thirsty Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, had all the power in heaven and on earth to satisfy that need. Do you find it ironic that the same God who caused water to flow out of a rock is now in human flesh asking for something to drink? Do you find it ironic that the same God in human flesh, that is Jesus, was visiting with a Samaritan woman and explaining that he is the true living water. And if she would just take what he provided, she'd be okay. So why on earth doesn't Jesus just provide for himself as we all know he's able to? I've got a good friend in West Africa, actually my best friend on the continent of Africa. His name's Nanjan, and he's a translator. But he also has a a direct calling on his life to share the hope of Jesus with people in his country. And so we really consider him part of the Grace Point Church teams when we go. And I've been on multiple, multiple journeys in West Africa. And every time I go, I ask my friend Nanjan, man, will you go with me? He never hesitates. He jumps at every single chance to go with me and story the name of Jesus to his own people. But Nanjan, he's just like me. He's got a wife you see here. He's got, he's got a family that he loves dearly. He provides for them. He's a busy man. And every time I travel to West Africa and I'm out in the bush, I miss my wife. I miss my, my boys. I miss my, my home. I miss our church. I miss our junior high students. And I'll look over at Nanjan and I'll talk to him about, man, whenever I see my wife back at the airport waiting to get me, I'm going to wrap her in my arms and I'm going to give her a big hug and I'm going to kiss her. And man, he just laughs. And I said, Nanjan, do you, do you miss your wife right now? Because he's out in the bush for the same amount of time we are. He'll say, yes, I miss her. I'll say, all right, Nanjan, what's the first thing that you're going to do whenever you get home then? And Nanjan, in the best impersonation of Nanjan I can do, he'll say, okay, whenever I get home, I'll say, yeah, man, are you going to hug your wife? You're going to give her a big kiss? <laughs> And man, he'll just laugh at me because that's not how they share love and affection in their culture. I have never seen a West African over there in their country kiss another person and hugging. I think they just do it because they see the white people do it. So they give it a shot like, yeah, let's try this hugging thing, even though we're not into the touchy feely thing at all. And so he'll respond. He'll say, no, when I get home, I'll be tired from my long journey and I will sit down. And first thing, my wife will bring me something to drink. This gesture, this act of submission between Nanjan and his life, this is not only her way of submitting to her husband, but acknowledging her love for him and her deep respect for him. He is the head of their family, 
the authority. She loves him deeply. At any moment, Jesus, he could have, he could have looked towards heaven and caused rain to come from the sky and he could have just funneled it right into his mouth and drank his fill. Not that that's how Jesus would have quenched his thirst, but he could have because he was Jesus. But instead, he was dying on the cross and he thirsted as submission to the Father's will. So Jesus thirsted because his suffering was intense. His suffering was intense because he was not just fully God. He was fully man. He felt every one of the lashes. And he was submitting to his father. I'm going to share one final thought with you guys. And and then I'm finished. And I'm going to leave you with this. But through these simple yet profound words, I am thirsty. We see how Jesus can sympathize with his suffering people. Hebrews 4, there's a passage in Hebrews 4, verses 14 and 15, and this is what it says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Now, my audience that I speak to every Wednesday night, junior high students, they are most often asking the question, so what? And it's not really from a point of sarcasm. It's, it's usually just from a junior high perspective. Like, so what, man? Like, I've, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I grew up in a Christian home. I've been to church my whole life. So what? So you're saying Jesus suffered. It was intense. He was fully God, fully man. I get it. He submitted. So what? Sympathy. That's the so what. In Hebrews 4, we find the most simplistic answer to this so what attitude, almost a selfish so what attitude. I'm going to read verse 15 again and lead into verse 16. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace. With confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I've been afraid most of my life to speak truth and share truth with people who might oppose me or judge me. And I have been so tempted to shy away from so many opportunities to story the name of Jesus. How dare me think that Jesus couldn't relate to that? If you've lived your life thinking that there is absolutely no one who could possibly know all the hurt, all the pain that you've gone through, the road that you've been down. Man, I'm going to tell you, you can never be more wrong. Because we're human, I think we're prideful. And some of us, when times are tough, we we battle through things alone. And, And I don't know if it's because of pride or if it's because we think that there is no one who could know how complicated our lives are, how convoluted my mess of a life is, how jacked up I am. There's no one who could possibly relate. Jesus can. Cheesy as you may think that sound, Jesus can relate. Jesus can understand. Jesus says we can approach him with anything, with hurts, with pains, with sorrows, with shame, with guilt. Regret, addiction, loss, whatever you are suffering through, you can approach him with confidence so that you may receive mercy and find grace. 
his suffering on the cross, it was real. It was intense because he was not only fully God, but he was fully man. And he shows this ultimate act of submission by submitting to the Father's will. And all of this so that he could sympathize with a broken, hurting world. I I hope that you will forever be changed by the words of Jesus on the cross, I am thirsty. And I hope that you will give it the meaningful weight and the depth that it deserves because we don't have a God who is sitting up in heaven with no idea of what we're going through. I've been where you are, thirsty for a Coke, a Dr. Pepper, a Mountain Dew. That ought to be so what? Big deal. God has been where you have been. God has been where you are. And God has been where you're going to be. And he wants to have a real and personal and authentic relationship with every one of you. And I guarantee you one thing. There is nothing that will quench your thirst like a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he's been where you are.